Tired of ads interrupting your favorite show? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free lifestyle to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads. Hello and welcome to the Secret Library Podcast. I'm your host, Caroline Donahue, and ever since I was little, I've been obsessed with books. So I started this show to interview authors and those behind the book so that we can learn not just why they mean something to us, but where they come from. Welcome to the Secret Library Podcast, and I just had a little bit of a brain freeze. I think we're now episode five. I have, to, I have to make a chart for myself. It's very exciting. And today, we're going to go in a little bit of a different direction, which is very exciting. We have Catherine Tice with us, who is a poet who also writes plays. And her first book of poems is The Fraud of Good Sleep, which, believe me, I know The Fraud of Good Sleep myself. And it's published by Salt Modern Poets in 2011, she, followed by her chapbook, The June Cuckold, A Tragedy in Verse, by Convulsive Editions, 2012. She's received various fellowships and awards, most notably from the Illinois Arts Council and the Del Amo Foundation, which I may have pronounced wrong. Her play, Medea, is forthcoming from Plays in Verse Press in 2016. She's a provost fellow and a PhD candidate in literature and creative writing at the University of Southern California. And she also translates contemporary Italian poetry into English. So you are the badass of poetry. I'm giving you that title also. Thank but you, Caroline. I wanted to bring you on because. I feel like in talking about books and in talking about reading, I feel like the people that I talk to books about and the people that think about books and are in the conversation, it's like poetry is just kind of, people don't know how to talk about it, at least the people I'm in community with. I feel like you're in community with people who talk about poetry all the time, and you guys are really good at it. I wanted to talk about how does somebody, I want to talk about how you wrote your work and how that happened, because I'm sure that's a really it's very different publishing process to the others. But I also want to know, how does somebody who's interested in poetry and really believes that poetry could be a force in their lives, but also feels like I don't even know where to start? I mean, I, I've read Rumi and Mary Oliver and, you know, and mm-hmm. and going further than that, it's just like, what do I do? That's a large question. No, yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. It's actually something I, you know, I, I talk about every day. As you said, I have a, I have a community of people who, um, who I'm in conversation with. And, um, you know, I think as a practicing poet, I'm always, uh, you know, we're talking specifically in genres. And um, I have a friend and he and I always talk about, um, you know, the sort of American notion of the genre and like putting language and stories and ideas and, into certain categories, and I guess poetry is just sort of the form that um, that works for me. But now it's also been plays and 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 lyric essays and and even translations to some extent. But the fact that um, you know language is so is so rich, and um, that I'm not even quite sure these terms poetry or uh, I mean, and certainly when you're writing a novel, it's something else. But I do think that um, that the, t- the label poetry does a disservice to poets because we can't get fiction writers to read us, uh, which is <laughs> I mean, there's lots of there's lots of I, I read a ton of fiction. I love novels, and there's so many novelists who I think are operating 
um, at the level of uh, their sentences operate at the level of, of poetry. So I, I guess this is all to say that I sort of question our maybe American notion of genre as a as a as a way to categorize writing. And maybe um, what I've been thinking about recently is how maybe like an Emersonian way of uh, writing things in journal form or in notes or in letters or um, maybe even in manifestos uh, as a way to sort of explore the condensation and sort of the, the brilliance of, of language um, at an individual word level. So I, that's, I guess, so I guess this just is my complaint against uh, the, the genre. <laughs> it sounds like you've got a manifesto in you. I think you should write them, and we could put them on the we could put them on the site. I would lo- I would love to be involved in that. Um, that would be something that I would be really interested in doing, especially when you and and the, one of the questions um, inside your your wonderfully open question was this idea of how one writes and the composition of of writing. And I think that um, you know if we were to um, I can only speak for myself, but I think you know the way I write is I sort of. Um, certainly, language comes to me in a, in a it's more sound based than than anything else, and so I hear mm-hmm. certain lines sung, and they become more like a chant or um, or a poetry that's sort of charged or energized by by its uh, chant like or its uh, choral sort of sort of mode. But I think for a lot of writers, um, it's just you know you have to get whatever you have. And you certainly know this. You have to get your words down on paper, right? And so sometimes they they take the form of a stanza. Sometimes they take the form of a um, of a you know a bulleted list, or maybe they're a diary entry, or maybe they're you know in complete sentences and complete paragraphs. But then ultimately um, the writer is charged with sculpting sculpting those things into um, something that they that they like. Yeah. So you hear? Do you hear lines of poetry that you write? Do they come into your head that way? They do. I mean, and I sort of, I didn't really, I didn't notice this until I started, um, I started cultivating a group of writers that I spoke with. And I just sort of thought that, um, that people, everybody, all poets, uh, heard, heard lines. And I realized when I have this good friend of mine and she doesn't hear, um, lines of poetry. Like when I, when I, um, I get an idea for a poem and it usually comes from, the sound of two or three lines, like I hear the line spoken, um, and mm. it. And I realized that a friend of mine, she was like, "That's crazy." When I get my two <laughs> or three lines, they come in a in a visual image. I am I am like this 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 picture in my the silent uh, picture is is sort of pressed on in my my dreaming state or in my conscious state, and I have to tra- I have to use language to to. Um, Sort of transcribe what's happening imagistically, and I realize that uh, I don't see pictures. I don't see speaking pictures in my in my head. I I hear I hear something that maybe corresponds to an image, but sometimes it's just more like a, a sound pattern that happens that I have to somehow uh, uh, wrap my head around. That's totally fascinating to me. I love yeah. I love hearing about how things come to people or how they get an idea. I mean. It seems like there is some sort of seed, and in talking to novelists and talking to nonfiction writers, like it does seem like there is some sort of germination that's a little pod, and then you have to kind of play with it and, and open it up a little bit. But the fact that they're who, what's the voice like? Is it is it the same voice all the time, or is it, it does it change? It's 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 the same. It's usually it's it's 
it's not always the same voice, but it's just it's words. Um, I know I notice that the language is spoken, and I guess. And I'm always curious, too, how people have an idea. Like, for a lot of people, it can just be, you know, oh, I want to write about the subject of desire. And then they start researching and they think about how people have have thought about desire. And for other people, it's they see a photograph of, you know, an umbrella um, that's, you know, leaning up against, uh, like, a old train station or something. I don't know. But the, but the sense is that – and I'm wondering if, the you know, the way people work through ideas – if it's just if it's related to their um, to how they make sense of the world through their you know through their senses like if there's a if I'm predominantly influenced by sound and if my friend that I was describing if she's more um, if her imagination is tied more to a visual landscape why the eye you know it becomes so important in her work and it's it's um, yeah, it's it's. I think, and I I think it might be. You know, I think it, it like everything is sort of related to your childhood and how you grew up and um, and what kind of experiences you were having. And I think um, because I grew up with an Italian mother and an American father, and I was speaking in two different languages. I think hearing language and hearing, um, you know, my family members and my um, different ancestors talking in different in different languages had a had a profound effect on me. And I didn't really realize this until I was in my 30s, that um, my whole imaginative life was ruled by this sort of duplicity and sound that I was always trying to, like, move back and forth um, from. That's so cool. Because, yeah, there's such different sounding languages, and that that would be a very influential thing if you're hearing two completely different languages and speaking them and seeing how they feel. Yeah, and then and also trying to um, have an identity in both of them, and trying to, um, yeah, trying to make sense of uh, how how a phrase doesn't work in one language, but maybe works in another, or whatever, whatever, however that means. But I think, um, you know, and I think I think people are sometimes also just born with certain sensitivities. Um, I'm very sort of. Uh, loud sounds sort of agitate me and uh, I can't when I write I can't listen to music um, when I read I really don't listen to music when I listen to music I totally listen to music like I will turn I will turn everything off and just put on music and not do anything else but dance to music that's kind of the way I listen to music mm. do you write poetry in Italian also or do you just use Italian as a translation I just Method. I just do Italian as a translation. It's I I tried uh when I was studying in Italy, I I tried writing in Italian, but um I grew up illiterate in Italian actually. I mm. was always a uh-huh. it was always a language that I spoke and I didn't learn how to read and write Italian until I was in college. So um I'm not as comfortable um in the written language of Italian uh in terms of original composition, but in terms of uh, translating, I think um, it works well because uh, my practice of translation is sort of what mirrors my own childhood when I was constantly mm. uh, either, you know, explaining things to my American friends or American families of what of what my Italian friends and family said, or, or moving through through those two two worlds. It's interesting because I wonder, like, I'm fascinated by the idea of word choice also in um, translation because I was recently. I read an article, and I cannot remember where I found it. I will try to find it and put it in the show notes. But it was an interview with Italo Calvino's translator. Mm. And 
it's so interesting because he said that, um, you know, he was very specific and it was, it was a difficult relationship, you know, to get started, but then eventually it, you know, it was working well. Yeah. And he would have him translate all these different things. But he said that Calvino, in some ways, because he spoke some English, um, he liked to get involved and he wanted to read the things. And then he would want to insert words in English that actually didn't work, but he would kind of get crushes on words like, um, I can't remember the examples, but they were weird words, like almost business speak, like, yeah. you know, um, protocol, like the word protocol or something like that. And then he would constantly want to insert that word all over the place in the translation just because he liked the word. And the translator said he had to sort of sneak and take them out because it just sounded crazy and, and not like what, Ital- um, what Calvino had written in Italian. And I just thought this was so fascinating. Um, yeah, that that is. I think that that um, it's so funny. Translation has it's it becomes it just becomes fetishized. I think sometimes and people just get fixated. I mean, and that's that's what the writer does all the time, right? Is he's he, she's just always stuck on a word and like trying to use it as much as she can. But it's so weird that you said you brought up Calvino because um, because my boyfriend just brought me back. Um, I had asked him. I, ha- I have a lot of Calvino, but I don't have um, that essay book, six um, six essays for the new millennium, which were his uh, uh, his Elliot Norton lectures at Harvard. And I always mm-hmm. check this book out of the library. I, I don't know if you have this sort of uh, relationship with books, but there's some books that I really should have in my library, but for whatever reason, I refuse to buy, and I always go to the library to get. And for me, mm-hmm. Calvino, six essays for a new millennium, and so. Um, I asked Aaron if he had a copy, and um, he said no. And so today, when he picked me up, he 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 uh, he handed me a copy of Calvino's uh, essays. And, oh, um, nice. Yeah, and so I had just right before. It's so strange. Right before, um, right before we started talking, I was looking at them because they each he wrote um, he wrote a series of you know the lectures. And I think there's six of them. And they were, he didn't get to see them published because he died. Mm. But um, they're all, they're like, the first one is called Lightness. Um, the second, I think they're called Memos. The second one is Quickness. The third one is Exactitude. The fourth one is Visibility. The fifth one is Multiplicity. And um, the sixth one uh, is, is, it cannot be found because he never wrote it. He was going to write it when he uh. came to Harvard, but he died before he he got a chance to deliver the lecture. So it's so strange that you mentioned that today of all days. <laughs> it's Calvino Day. Yeah. Yeah, it feels like these, it feels like there are, I mean, like any other genre of writer, you know, it feels like there are novels that sort of everybody gravitates towards at a certain point. And, you know, everybody's reading the same books. And and I feel like the thing with poetry, at least for me, is that there were certain period of my life when I was like probably in my early 20s and and maybe in college where it felt like the veils were a little thinner and I was sort Mm -hmm. of reaching out to poetry and reading it and then it was like I got into my 30s and started to feel like oh I don't even think this was conscious but there was a feeling of I don't really know what I'm doing in this area and I don't know how to look for for things that I would like to read. Um, and I tried, but there's that canon of, you know, people you've heard of, like Adrian Rich or, um, 
Rumi or Pablo Neruda or, you know, these whole lists or, or people. I mean, I like Billy Collins, but it's like he's a poet laureate. Everybody knows who that is or anyone who looks into poetry with any little bit of effort. But I just feel like people don't know how to get into that. And maybe we should have a bookstore that's not organized by genre. Maybe that's a manifesto to do to get people. <laughs> yeah. Like organize it by idea or something instead of genre, but I that would I mean that would be great. It's like an index in the back of a book. Like you're you know you're interested mm-hmm. on tragedy, and so then you have all these entries. Like you have a novel that talks about tragedy, and you have a play that talks about tragedy. And yeah, and you have a book of poems that talk about tragedy. Um, I mean I hate I hate you know in all candor I you know it's it's it, it I mean it's even it's it's difficult for me. Um, to to navigate uh, poetry waters and um, just to even have a sense of of what's uh, you know what people are reading right now or what uh, because there's just there's just so much I mean there's so many new mm-hmm. contemporary um, poets who are publishing and who are publishing online and while I think that's you know that's a wonderful idea I think it's there's also I've noticed uh, a trend toward um, you know using poetry um, not in its celebratory use or at least there's not enough poets who are who are who are really celebrating sort of the one the wonderful things that are happening in our life and using it really as a form of dissent and social protest which I completely um I completely read with fascination but I just it just I mean these are the sort of the, the sort of poetry wars that happen or the trends and that people don't really have a sense and I think of what's going on and I think the bigger sort of question or idea that you're you're pointing to is that you know a lot of poetry written is um in some ways inaccessible and so mm-hmm. um you know we have to sort of think about what it means to be accessible and and how we make sense of things that uh seem to be to put us at a distance and how willing we are we to 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 uh to go you know to to be comfortable with those distances um, I mean, po- reading poetry is really, really hard, um, and so I, you know, I think that we all, you know, we all feel feel like we we should be reading more and more poetry. And I'm I'm gonna go out on a limb and and say something <laughs> totally crazy, and you might like disagree, you might disagree with me, but you know, maybe maybe not everybody should be reading poetry. And mm-hmm. as a poet, I I've obviously I think about my audience, and I want people to understand me. I don't necessarily. Um, go out of my way to to alienate people but I think sometimes you know it's like when you go to a dinner party and you resonate with somebody or you don't and mm-hmm. what does that mean um I don't know I I mean it, these are all like wonderful questions that I'm that I have been dealing with on a like a day-to-day level because um that's all I do and they're and then, <laughs> you know, it's like my my survival in the world depends on 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 these kinds of questions but I sort of wonder um, you know, does it, it makes me a little sad that only poets read poetry, really, but, um, but if they're committed to that endeavor and they're willing to, to try to, try to close up or shore up those distances, then, then maybe, maybe that's all we can ask for. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's, yeah, it's sort of like in some ways audiences are self-selecting, but I guess I wonder, because there's, you know, there's a whole spectrum. Like, there's people who say things like, oh, I wish I read more, or Mm -hmm. I read these surveys. Like, you know, people 
I think it's considered, I can't, I, I'm going to quote this so badly. I'll have to link to something in the show notes. But my memory of it, which is probably flawed, is that there was something like the average American reads something like, it was like high average if they read 10 books a year. Mm-hmm, that was considered mm-hmm. like a lot of reading. And to me, reading 10 books a year would be punitive. I would be like, yeah. you know, they would all have to be 2,000 pages for me to be okay with that number. Um, right. Because I, I read a lot more than that. And I think that, so there's, but I, so in some cases, I think there are people out there who just don't read that much. And the thought of reading more is like telling people to take certain kinds of vitamins or things that are prescriptive, like, you know, this is good for you. But right. I also think there's a little bit of, about poetry to me that um, that reminds me of a relationship I used to have with music, which was I really like music, but I don't – it isn't my area of research, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And I used to go into music stores and get incredibly anxious, and I would have to call somebody and say, hey, oh, no. what do you think yeah. I should be listening to? And and now the thing that's happened sort of more recently is that there are services like Pandora or Spotify or something, and I can put in something that I like, and then it will generate a station of songs that I've never heard before, and I can say, oh, I actually like this artist, and I'm able to mm-hmm. discover, and mm-hmm. I want like a Pandora of poetry. I think that's where yeah. I'm, because if I knew more, I think I would know what I liked, and I could go down this rabbit hole, but I just don't feel like there's anything... Maybe there is, and I don't know about it. But I don't feel yeah. that there's that same kind of function happening. I mean, I mean, for me, it was just a lot of trial and error. It was a lot of I was going mm-hmm. to poetry re- readings that were kind of that were kind of amazing, and then they were going to poetry readings that were that were not so good. It was going to house parties and um, hearing, uh, you know, academic perform uh, poets perform in a, you know in a house party situation, um, or it was hearing more sort of mainstream poets in in you know, in the Art Institute of Chicago or something. I mean there was just a lot a lot of trial and error and just um mm-hmm. I think maybe you know I know that um you know a lot I would say like if I were to, if I were to sort of um sort of be totally presumptuous and 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 talk to a to a young to a young woman about getting into poetry I would be like what you know what what kind of artwork do you like? What kind of um, uh, what what period in history were you really fascinated um, with? And then sort of think about well, what were the writers at that time, or the time before, or the time right after doing? And then kind of maybe approach uh, writing through the lens of history, and then see if anything resonates with them that way. I mean, I've always sort of loved. Um, Modernism, and uh, I had never read, for instance, H.D., the poet Hilda Doolittle, um, really until I was an adult. But I was so interested in modernism that, and she sort of is on the periphery, and she pops up everywhere. And so, as a result of being really interested in what you know, not just writers or poets, but like uh, performance artists and people who are writing for the theater and painters, um, and just approaching writing through a sort of more, and I think poetry. Um, because poetry and po- most often poets are involved in a cu- couple of different things, you can you can you can access poetry through through the specific figures in history in a, in a, in a specific time and place. And that might be a useful way of thinking about how to sort of 
get into poetry if you don't live in a city where there's, you know, a vibrant reading culture or um, uh, or or a network of, of writers. That feels like a mental breakthrough happening right now. I'm like, oh, <laughs> yes. Well, I'm glad. Okay. I hope I wasn't too bossy about that. But that's, I mean, no, I want you to be bossy. You're okay. on because you're the expert, man. I want you to <laughs> boss me around. It's great. Well, I would think, I mean, I know, I have, I have a sense of, I mean, I have a sense of what you, of what you like, and I know what you like, so I would, you know, I would say, like, go, like, Duchamp is a great example. Like, a lot of people would sort of use, you know, use him, like, do we call him a poet? Like, he hasn't, I mean, I I think of Duchamp as a poet, honestly, more than a painter. But that's just because that's how I've made sense of him in terms of my, my, uh, you know, my his, my, my, my re, my retransmission of history in my in my mind, um, but yeah, that's just another way to to go about things. I think. Yeah, because then you start to think about like the ways that people have used language during certain periods throughout history, right. um, and it adds another layer because one person I talked to in episode three, Sam Potts, is um, he's an interior book designer, and we talked about like trends and typography and the ways that that impacted the way books look. So I feel like, mm-hmm. you know, the way that people think influences and the ideas that are present, it adds another layer to history to think about, not just, I mean, I think that would impact poetry actually is what they're able to print and the way that they're able to print it, given the way that poetry looks on the page. Um, oh yeah. How much control you're able to have over that, I'm sure has a, a lot to do with it. But um yeah, I love this idea of poetry adding another layer of richness to your understanding of periods of time and the ways people are thinking and the ways people are communicating. Yeah, because a lot of, I mean, I mean, it's so funny. Like you can, you know, there's a whole sort of um, idea of, of of poetry that, you know, you can find poetry even like in a court transcript, or you can find poetry <laughs> in, a, in a grocery bill or in a found note. I mean, we're con- as you know, I think as humans, we're constantly looking looking to language to contain everything for us, whether it be, like, the transmission of, like, some important, like, detail, like what to buy at the grocery store and what that means. I mean, you know, when we're when we're looking at, when we're pouring over our text messages, we're sort of wondering, what does this mean? How is this, why does this person say it this way? How should I respond? I mean, you know, there's, there's not to say that there's instances of, of, of poetry every, everywhere in the world, but rather that we're always, we're always trying to figure out our relationship to language. And I think, um, you know, if, if somebody is interested in trying to figure out uh, what poets they like, they should just start, they should, they should think about what they like, what other things they like um, that's not poetry, and then try to, like, if you, you know, if you really like 19th century novels, it's very different than liking, you know, um, novels from, well, I won't talk about novels. I'm not an expert in novels. <laughs> well, you, <laughs> well, anybody, you, you don't have to be an expert in novels to talk about it. Um, yeah. You read novels, therefore you can talk about them, at least on my okay. show. Okay, thank you. What was the what, yeah, was no. the, what what novel are you reading right now? I meant to ask you. Oh, this is hilarious. Um, It's so kind of off the reservation. Well, I'm reading, I have sort of a rule, which is I can read no more than three books at once. Mm-hmm. And... I, so I can read a fiction book, a nonfiction book, and mm-hmm. I can listen to an audiobook. Mm-hmm. So that's like my upper limit. So the nonfiction I'm reading is H's for Hawk, um, oh. which is a memoir about a woman who raises a goth hawk. Um, she has been a 
falconer or a bird. I mean, she's a professor at Cambridge, and her father dies, and they had this relationship to birds growing up mm-hmm. or when she was growing up. And so it sort of is a way of mourning the death of her father. She decides to train the most difficult bird there is to train. Wow. Um, and there's a lot of poetry in that one, just the way that she uses language. It's beautiful. Right. Um, so I'm reading that, and but the novel I'm reading right now is called Stiletto. I'm actually listening to it, and it is the second book in a ridiculous kind of slightly farcical sci-fi series by this guy named Daniel O'Malley. The first one was called The Rook, and it's sort of about um, – I think it's in a genre that's growing up of almost like an X-Files meets London law enforcement. I feel like there's a lot of books around this. So um, it's this kind of supernatural police regulatory thing. And it's very, you know, entertaining and fun. But um, it's definitely not a literary novel. (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah, they shouldn't all be literary novels. No, I was just thinking of of Happy Valleys or, yeah, and um, Black Mirror when you said all that. Have you seen those two TV shows? Yes. I don't know Happy Valleys, but I know Black Mirror. Yeah. I haven't watched either of them. I'm I'm in Game of Thrones land. Okay. Which I never thought I would be, but somehow we've we've become Game of Thrones people. Yeah. Um but yeah, I mean I think just the idea of language as a layer of understanding and that there are I hate the word trends in this context. Maybe there are patterns or ways of understanding or communities around language that form. Like people in the oh, 60s yeah. in California are going to be thinking about language in a different way than people in the 1700s in France, you know, of a certain class. Oh, yeah. And I'll be, I'll be the first to admit, like, poets, you know, sometimes can be very exclusionary. And they sort of, um, I think they, you know, they, they build little uh, cliques and schools and make it really hard for outsiders to come in. And so, I, like anything, if you're persistent enough, if one is persistent enough, you can you can sort of uh you know be initiated into um into that school or into that mode or way of thinking and but i know at the same time it's like well why would i want to be a part of something that's not super welcoming um and so that that's just kind of you know it's just that's just sort of the re- the reality of uh of of artists i mean most poets are super gossips and quite vain <laughs> no, of course i i i'm i'm not that way but um I've been, you know, I've been, I've been privy to a lot of interiority of poets and they're, and they're, they can be that, they can be kind of mean. But of course, there's so many wonderful poets who are not like that. So um, that's why, that's why I continue to, to, to be friends with them and to read their work. Do you think that there's a notion of kind of selling out if you make your work too accessible in the poetry I think community so. or you're not, yeah. you're not pushing the idea hard enough? Yeah, I think so. I mean, certainly we've seen it, um, you know, you've re- you've mentioned Billy Collins, and I think that, you know, for, for any sort of, uh, uh, you know, person who's, I mean, to, you know, to be quite honest, anybody who's in, uh, you know, some sort of um, academic program, you know, ha- having, having uh, uh, you know, he's, he's quite often called a mainstream poet, um, somebody who's right. easily accessible, who uh who's won a lot of awards, who makes a lot of money, who is not seemingly not in touch 
with the voice of of a of a of a, of a people. Um, so he sort of held out held out as this example of like of uh, you know somebody who's too accessible. But I don't. I mean, I don't. Um, I'm never. I, I you know I don't. I am. I'm not. I'm not familiar with his work actually because. It was never. It was never. It was never taught to me. Uh, it was never. Po- I mean, the way I learned poetry was just through my, um, through my own reading, and then reading poems that friends gave to me, and and that and poems that were taught to me in, in class. And his poems were never really taught to me in class. I think because they were so easily um, understood and on the surface. But that yeah, so you know, it's like you could figure those out on your own. Right, but that's just this sort of just reflects my own sort of biased um, biased training, and and it might be completely different for you know for somebody else. Yeah, but I mean even the so term how, I sort. No, go ahead. Oh no, I was just gonna say even this term selling out is kind of I'm always fascinated by this term because I think um, you know its resonance as a phrase is or as a concept is sort of um, it's a lo- I mean I I you know I I end up teaching. A lot of young um, young writers, and they're and um, surprisingly, they're not familiar with this term. The notion <laughs> of selling out to them uh, doesn't exist, right? Um, because it's not something. Uh, it's just not something. It's not a dilemma. It's not a moral dilemma that they're facing because they didn't have the same sort of political um, political history or political um, background that maybe writers of, of, of our generation and the ones before us had. So that's, that's kind of, a, I'm also always fascinated by that, by that idea that, um, what does it mean, you know, to, to sell out? Um, well, for some people that, that's not even a, that's not even a problem <laughs> because they don't, they don't know what that means. That's so amazing. It also makes me feel really old, but, um, <laughs> they were old enough that there are like intellectually engaged beings young enough that they don't know what our issue is. And they're going to be like, you don't understand the truth. And I was like, Oh yeah. God, I'm those people now. And I feel like an old, you know, like an old Bolshevik who or something <laughs> who's like, you shouldn't be selling out to the man, but it's like, aren't yeah, we all they have no- having these, experiences of like um it's okay to make money that isn't a bad thing but clearly anyone who still thinks about selling out it has some ambivalence about that yeah i mean they they don't i mean they don't care if the if you know they don't care if the you know the um i'm trying to think of the nick drake song whatever that comes through the volkswagen i mean they found it through volkswagen but then they take it somewhere you know into their personal into their personal listening landscape so for them it doesn't it doesn't really matter um but you know, for me, or, you know, just thinking about, um, you know, uh, people who, who make music, like, I remember reading that, like, Tom Petty has never, has never given one of his songs away to a commercial, um, because he feels that that, that crosses the boundary of his artistic practice, of the sacred, you know, of the, of the sacredness of his artistic practice. But, um, yeah, it's kind of wild to think about. That is amazing. Because I think, to me, in the nation, in the sort of, notion of poetry or writing or any engagement of language, it isn't so much about selling out financially, but it's more about, I'm thinking of the way people engage with certain writers like who write kind of, oh, now I'm going to use your favorite word again, but like what's considered kind of quote unquote genre fiction, like mm-hmm. slightly formulaic. You can sort of, you sort of know what you're getting into. They're frequently sold in airports, you know, you know you're going to get a certain kind of plot, you can rely on it, and maybe the person isn't pushing the idea as far as it could go, or they're not really challenging 
the plot structure or someone who does the same thing again and again, like, you know, Dan right. Brown. Um, yeah. Versus, I mean, I mean, I'm wondering, yeah, no, are you there? Yeah. Or, or maybe, yeah. Oh. Or maybe they're <laughs> selling their, um, they're selling, they're, you know, they're, 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 they're paying their way for their, for their work under a pen name of a genre writer, but yet they're doing, you know, really groundbreaking intellectual work and why we have, and why there's a stigma attached, attached to, you know, to genre writing or, you know, for yeah. stories, you know, non-literary stories. When, you know, all stories are, are, should be stories really, but we make these sort of, um, you know, I think a lot of times class, you know, classless, ju- you know, judgments based on, on, on class. Um, which is something we don't really talk about a lot, but no, it's true. It's like, are you? Yeah, what is the purpose of groundbreaking versus what is the purpose of something that's familiar and enjoyable, and is what really has value, and what's a valuable pursuit for someone to follow? Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I read both. I think I read a mix of things that are you know, really challenging to read and then things that are, you know, I'm tired, I'm having a tough time at work and I need to read something that's a little bit more like a, like a, well, I don't want a warm blanket today. I'll tell you that much. It's more like a, um, <laughs> like a, like a refreshing swimming pool is what I would say. Oh, today. Yeah, totally. Of course. I think, I think, yeah, I think that's the key to um, a really good reading practice is to have sort of a range of things and not to, and to you know to cha- challenge yourself with with works that are totally different and that you know you might not uh, you might not otherwise read but somebody recommends it to you and you're like okay well I'll try it and you know I'll see I'll see what I'll see what happens I mean because we're always you know our, our sort of reading histories um, should be allowed that sort of uh, room to grow. How do you read sort of in terms of feeding your I mean maybe you don't think about it this way but. But do you read in a particular way when you're working on poetry or plays that you want to kind of cultivate or, or like compost or mulch your uh-huh. your mind in terms of language? Yeah, I mean, I uh, I uh, I try to re- I try to read uh, a little bit of poetry every day, and I think not a lot. Um, and I, ha- I actually, you know, I have um, I'm sort of blessed with having a lot of poet friends and a lot of people who are not writers. And um, so I'm sort of involved in conversations of um, poetry is so hard and how should I read it? And what my non-writer friends and I have come up with is the sort of formula of if you're not used to reading poems, that you should read one or two poems in the morning before you've had coffee or as you're having coffee. (laughs) When you're sort of like when you're in this primordial state and you're not quite sure what's happening in the world and what's happening with you where you're not fully awake yet, because I think... I think sometimes we're sort of oversensitized and we can't read poetry because we've been busy humming, humming, humming all day. And, um, you know, there needs to be a real quietness when you read poetry. And so I have this good friend, Alyssa, and she was like, the only way I could read your book was, and I was like, well, you had to read like one poem a day. And she was like, yeah, totally. And, and, um, <laughs> and then I said, let me guess, you had to read it in the morning before before anything started and she was like actually yeah it was the only time I could concentrate and um and I just let the words wash right over me and so I've taken sort of this conversation that that she and I have had with uh to other people um so if you're interested and I think that there's a sense like we we all want to be really good readers and we all want to read a book from the beginning to the end 
And I think with, with poems, we, we're never really taught this, is that you don't have to read a poetry book from, from page one to page two, or page 22, or however long the book is. What you can do is you can just skip around. You can start anywhere. You can go, to, you can read backwards, forwards. You can start in the middle and then go to the front. But you should maybe only read one or two poems a day. You should read it um, aloud. You should find a partner, um, whether that's a lover or a husband or a boyfriend or a, or a son, a daughter. Read, read the poem aloud before you've done anything. And I think that that might help in terms of um, cultivating a reading practice for poetry. It doesn't work for, for other things. But I think it might work um, if you wanted a, a, a remedial course on, on how, to, how to make sense of, of poetry today. I love this. I think this is a very sexy prescription, <laughs> at least, <laughs> given that I, I, you know, live with a man. So, you know, I love the idea of like, hey, when we get up, let's read each other a poem. That sounds really good. It actually, it kind of, it is, it's, it's sort of inspiring because it puts you, um, you know, it puts, it creates a dialogue between you and the, and the loved one. You get to hear your own voice or you get to hear the voice of the person, uh, you know, your partner who's reading. And then you also, at the same time, you get to hear, and I'm all, I'm so interested in voice. And this goes back to, um, you know, my, my sort of background and, and how sound works and what I think an acoustical imagination can give can give a reader and can give a writer is that you get to hear the the voice of the of, of the poet um, in your morning. She suddenly pops up, um, you know, with your cup of coffee, and it's a very intimate um, exchange. And because no and and you know this, I'm advocating this in a sort of arena where there's no TV on, no radio on, no NPR. Save NPR for the car. Uh, wait to do and the only sounds should be you know the sound of your own breathing the person you're reading to and the coffee maker because I think every morning should include coffee (laughs) well ours do so we've got the coffee covered um but the adding the poem is really good I have Mm -hmm. this notion um that I actually got I think from and she said who she gotten it from so this is one of these like telephone ideas but um, yeah, and if we're if there are any listeners who are of the the age generation of the not knowing what um, selling out means, those of you who don't know what the telephone game is, it's <laughs> this idea that phones used to not sound so great all the time, and so you pass a message from one person to another, and it would sound different by the end. Um, but I think the telephone idea that's passed along for me, which I've now distorted and I'm using it my own way, is this idea of reading medicinally. Mm-hmm. And I feel like poetry particularly lends itself to that because, you know, a whole novel is a big thing and you'll read it in a number of sittings unless you're, you know, on a very long flight or in some place where you get to sit. But a poem can, most poems that I know of could be read in one sitting. And yeah. It's almost like a dose of something that shifts your perspective and, and makes it bigger, which I love. Yeah, as soon as when you when you said medicinally, I was just thinking, yeah, you can think of you can think of poetry as, you know, it can be something that's uh, because it's so concentrated anyway that you want to make sure mm-hmm. that you're not you're not uh, doing like seven other things that could you know interact with with its with its uh, with its with the drug, you know, because poetry is a drug. I mean, for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. 
um, it becomes this intoxicant and they either read poems to get to a different state or they take a lot of drugs in order to write poems and have it an accent sort of in intoxication. But yeah, I mean, it's very, it should be really heady and it should be really strong. And I think that that's, you know, that's why it's scary is because it has such a, it has such a force. It does. I almost, I almost think this would be a fun project and we can see if this happens, but, um, if we get people, people can write in to, um, I guess the best address to use now would be info at carolinedonahue.com. I'll probably come up with another email address, but this will work indefinitely. People have written in asking for book prescriptions of, oh, I'm having this situation in my life. I, you know, I've just broken up with somebody or I'm going to move or, or this is going on and what should I read? And of course, you know, I prescribe from what I know, books and whatever, but it would be fun if, if I could some, at some point give you a letter and say, what poem would you give them for this? We could almost have a, a medicinal poem response. I would, I would love to, I love, would love to act as resident, resident MD on that. Yes, you can be the, you can be the poetry doctor on the book doctor. We'll bring you in. Be like, that would be, I love it. I think this is a good idea. So anybody who's listening to this episode, if you want a poem prescribed, you can write in to info at carolinedonahue.com and just write poetry prescription in the subject line and tell me about what's going on in your life and I will consult with Catherine and we will get you a poem prescription and we'll put it on the blog. I think this will be a good experiment. Sounds and, excellent. Uh, we'll see, see what it does. So maybe that's what we'll... That's what we'll do going forward. I really want to. I really want to get poetry into the conversation, and I feel like we've just started. So I feel like you're going to have to come back if you're okay with I that. I would love. I would love to come back, and nothing makes me happier because I feel like. I feel like we could. You know. I think. Um, you know. There's. There's. Poem like having the having the 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 label of poems. It. I think it does. Right now, at least in this point in time, it does a disservice, and so I would love to. To, to come back and make uh, and, and open up poetry and not yeah, in a, in a, on poetry. a little on this on a little 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 section of the bookstore where no one visits. Yeah, the section with the skinny little books that people are people are intimidated by. Um, <laughs> we can we can liberate them and maybe we can write a little manifesto and put that up too. Count me in. I think that would be all right. Let's do it. Thank you so much for for being on the show. This has been really exciting. I always feel smarter when I talk to you, which is always a good thing. And um, we will definitely have you back. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Secret Library Podcast, where we're going deep inside the world of books. You can listen to all episodes on iTunes. Show notes for this episode and all other episodes can be found online at secretlibrarypodcast.com. To stay up to date and hear about future episodes, please subscribe to Footnotes, my newsletter, on the site. You can also find out about coaching with me, Caroline, and get book prescriptions and other goodies at carolinedonahue.com. If you've enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend and leave a review on iTunes. Thank you so much, and until next week, happy reading. Tired of ads interrupting your favorite show? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free lifestyle to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads. So, how do we get AI right? Well, we need the right volume of data and massive compute power. But with HPE GreenLake, we get access to supercomputing to power AI at the scale we need. Oh! 
Search HPE GreenLake.